If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them with me and turn to the book of... You know, that's good. <laughs> the book of Romans. Romans chapter 13 is where we are at. We just have preached basically verse um, 11. I'm going to do something quick here. We are not going to use this up here, okay? So I'm going to do a couple. Well, we can keep, is the screen on? Yes, okay. So I'm going to put, I'm doing something very different today than I have done in a while. All right, no screen. That's good. So here's the deal. Let's look at the text and then we'll see where we're at and you'll understand what's going on. The Bible says, do this. What? Do what? Love. I mean, the whole chapter is about love. It, it, you can't, you, matter of fact, you go all the way up to chapter 12, it's about love. It's, it, we as Christians are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Amen? Not only are we to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, but also because of that love for our God, we can't help but love one another. We must be loving one another. Amen? Could you imagine this world when everybody loves each other? There would be no politics. Woo! I can't imagine that. But can we imagine if we truly love one another? This passage at the end of it, and we're, we're coming to the end, verses 11 through 14, it's all about, okay, what do we do with this? This imperative to love, this, imper this, this commandment to love one another, what now do we do with it? Do this. Why? Love. Why? Knowing the time. That it is already the hour you to are for you to awake from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. This text is obviously about Knowing the time. There is a motivation why we should be loving each other like we've never loved before. Why we should be putting ourselves aside and focusing on others. Why? The time is short. The time is at hand. Folks, 2,000 years ago it was at hand. If it's at hand then, what do you think it is now? It's 2,000 years closer. <laughs> What is this time? What are we talking about? Last week, we introduced the text, and we introduced the first point. The first point is, wake up! What do you mean, wake up? Wake up out of our sleep of selfishness. Amen. Wake up and serve others. Wake up and love others. Wake up, and here's the, here's the point, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your neighbors need the Lord. Your enemies need the Lord. Our politicians need the Lord. The world needs Christ. You realize that it was nothing that you did to deserve salvation. You weren't good enough because it's impossible. We simply put our trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Amen. We were lost. You can read Ephesians chapter 2 and how wicked and horrible we were. We were, in essence, a spawn of Satan. But God, verse three, 4, 3 or 4, amen? God saved us out of that slime pit. God's love saved us so that our love can share that same love of Christ to others. Amen? That is the hope. That is what we're called to do. That is what this text is saying. Wake up. Love each other. 
You cannot turn on TV without watching somebody hate on somebody else. I was talking to the workforce, and it is almost impossible to go to the workforce and where there's not stress these days. It is everybody's going bonkers, and anger is being expressed over and over and over again. Why? Because most people don't know the Lord. They don't know the Lord. Unfortunately, even Christians get caught up into it and they become angry also. We need to repent of that sin and know God better. Amen? Regardless, this text, we've already introduced it, and now we're coming to, and we already preached the wake up. The issue that I want to work on this morning is wake up for what time is he talking about? What is the time that he's talking about? What, what is this issue? Wake up. Wake up because of what? Well, I want to... <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm trying to find it. Oh, yes. I was hoping I could get this. I could not get this. Um, oh, yes, look at that. Man, praise the Lord for that. I didn't know that that would work, but it did. So I'm going to show you what I'm doing. This is a screen. This is, a screen, this is the Internet, all right? And, and I wanted to show you something very important. There are basically three different views of what this text is talking about. How you look at this text depends on what you are in your eschatological viewpoint. How many know what eschatology is? Eschatology is the study of what God is going to do in the future. It's called eschatology, the eschaton, the future uh, 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 things of the Lord. There are three major views, and to be honest with you, Two of these views are becoming more and more in vogue. They are the popular views these days, and many people are pushing away what I believe is the correct view. How many understand this? This is called, can you read it all right, a little bit? Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Now, <clears throat> I'm just going to quickly go through these and show you why we, by different Christians, all these people can be Christians that are in all three of these. How many understand that? How they can be different in what they're talking about. First of all, let's go to the amillennial view, which is on probably that side, yes. There will be no literal historical reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years. His second coming ushers in the eternal state. So, in essence, in the amillennialist view, there is no rapture, there is no tribulation, there is no millennial kingdom. Literally, the kingdom reign of Christ and his saints is inexistent for the period of time between Christ's two events. In other words, Jesus Christ, when he came here the first time and when he's going to come again, in between that time frame is called what we call the church age. How many understand that? Church was born after Christ's first um, uh, appearance on this earth. The kingdom is realized in the church on earth or the saints in heaven. The promises to Israel about a land seed, the throne, are completely fulfilled now in a spiritual sense in the church. The promises to Israel were conditional and Israel did not meet those conditions. Christ is ruling now. Satan is bound now between Christ's two advents. The people that astound this or have promoted this are Origen, who is a Prestistic, Augustine, which is a Prestistic, the Roman Catholic Church, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, B.B. Warfield, Burkhoff, Beale, and Hendrickson. There, that's a lot. <clears throat> now, why is this important? It's important because, in essence, the amillennials believe that we are presently and currently in the millennial kingdom. 
That is their view. We are in the millennial kingdom. Therefore, if we, and we, I totally disagree with just about everything that was said there, all right? If we are in the millennial kingdom, then when it says, do this knowing the time, they are expecting the time when Jesus comes back and judges the world at the great white throne judgment. That is what they are anticipating. How many understand that? And the great white throne judgment is when God judges everybody. They also believe that he are, they are going to judge. <coughs> that's where the Bema seat, that's where all the judgments happen. I don't think the Bible bears that out. But that's what an amillennialist believe. They do believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They do believe that they need to be saved. These are not heretics. I just believe eschatologically they're wrong. But that's what they're looking for when they read that text. Got it? A post-millennialist. Christ's coming will occur after the millennium. The church is not the kingdom, pushing back against amillennialism, but it will bring in the kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. Christ will not be on the earth during the kingdom. He will rule in the hearts of his people, but will return after the millennium. There will be no literal thousand-year millennium. The church, not Israel, will receive the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and David in a spiritual sense. So, in other words, everything... And by the way, an amillennialist, they believe that things are going to get worse. A post-millennialist does not believe that. Things are going to get better. Because the church will usher in the kingdom. So things are going to get better and better and better and better. I totally disagree with this, this view. Those people that followed it were Daniel Whitby. I don't know who he is. Jonathan Edwards, he's considered America's theologian. Charles Wesley, Charles Hodge, A.A. A. Hodge, Augustus Strong, B.H. Carroll, and G.W. Truitt. Here's the issue. Something that's important, why we give these guys names. By the way, I'm not giving these guys names so that you're like, oh, I like him, so I'm going to follow him. Don't do that. Follow the word. Follow the word. Here's the reality. No one in the early church had this view. That's what's being very clearly represented here. Origen and Augustine is the earliest that amillennialist comes. People believe that Augustine was the father of amillennialism, but that's patristic. There is none here at all. Matter of fact, the earlier ones are from American theologians. How many are little? Okay, all right. The next one. So how do they view this knowing the time? Get ready, wake up. Well, they're saying, wake up. Get on fire for the Lord and give the gospel. Literally, they are saying the same thing a premillennialist would say about we need to get busy preaching the gospel because Jesus is coming again. Now, we disagree when he's coming again with them, but they're still, we're doing the same thing. How many understand that? Now we come to a premillennial. This is where my view is. This is where our church stands. This is their eschatological doctrinal statement. Premillennials, Christ's second coming will occur before the millennium. Christ will return at the end of this age to reign for 1,000 years. In the millennium, by the way, Revelation chapter 20 says it seven times in six verses that he's coming to reign for 1,000 years. In the millennial kingdom, the nation Israel will experience the blessings of God promised to Abraham and to David. In other words, God promised something in the Old Testament. He's going to keep His promise. If that's not true, then what is your salvation based on? He promises us eternal life. He's going to come through with His promises. New Testament believes believers are grafted in to share in some of the covenant blessings the church today is not completely experiencing the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel, but they are some. The heart, the Holy Spirit, there's a list that we could go through, but not all. 
The millennium is an intermediate kingdom of a thousand years in which Christ reigns before the establishment of the eternal state. These are some of the men that advocate premillennialism. Clement, Polycarp, Ignatius, Trilitarian, Cyprians, Tyndale. Okay, so the first five are all patristic. Then comes the Middle Ages, Tyndale, some Anabaptists, Moravians, Mennonites, John Wesley, it's interesting, John and Charles had disagreed on this. Ryrie, Wolverd, Graham, Ryrie and Wolverd are Dallas. If you want to know about dispensationalism, premillennialism, that's the place to go. Some of them have gone wacko, be careful. I will tell you, one of their teachers <clears throat> named Zane Hodges believes that you don't have to have a cross to be saved. You don't have to be a death, burial, and resurrection to be saved. No deity to be saved. That's baloney. That's nuts. That's way out of bounds. Graham, <clears throat> Criswell, Moore, Grudem, Erickson, Moeller. Grudem has changed his position. It's interesting as, as, as new things come and go, people change their position based on the wave of what's popular. Sometimes I pray it's because I found a new verse that I did not take into account before. Amen. Um, Swindoll, Al Mohler, and John MacArthur. So, how many, so, what are the premillennialists looking for then in here? Well, what is a premillennial discussion? There is actually, every premillennial believes this, some t that God will save His people from the wrath of God to come. It says it twice in the scripture that I'm aware of. Thessalonians and in Revelations. He will save his people from the great wrath or great tribulation that will come. The reality is there is a time it looks like in scripture based on 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and then also based on other texts of scripture that we there will be a time when there are no believers on this earth because God's going to take them home. He's not going to put them through the great tribulation. We call that what? We call that the rapture of the church. Now there's argument of when it happens, when it doesn't. In this form that we're at, it doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus is coming again to take us home. Therefore, we need to be out proclaiming the gospel because we're loving each other. That is where we are coming from in this text. He's not coming to set up his kingdom so we better preach more. He's coming to take us home and we won't have that opportunity to share the gospel with anybody anymore. The time is short. And you look at this world, it's really short. Things aren't getting better and better, let me tell you. If anybody thinks things are getting better and better, I am not going to say a word. You can finish the sentence yourself. <clears throat> things are getting worse. Jesus, I'm going to close that screen again. Jesus is coming again to take His church, His bride, away. Amen. We believe to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we sit with Christ and dine with Him. When we see, like Tim Zarin was saying, we see Christ face to face. We don't have to face death. We get to see Him face to face. And here's the problem with premillennialism. This is where I believe this is the very reason Paul wrote it. With premillennialism, we can think, well, we can just sit back and wait for the rapture. Let me ask you, Christians don't do that, do they? We can just sit back and not do anything, and we can, and this is exactly what Mrs. Mr. Zaren was talking about. We can, we can get out of here. Folks, I want to get out of here. <laughs> but that's not what motivates me in my life. What motivates me in my life is I need to serve God and love others. And that's why I'm still here today. That is my job. According to this text, I had better wake up and get on it. 
Serve more. Pray for more. Love more. Love greater. Amen? Can we ever love more? Can we love more than we're loving now? Yes or no? Absolutely. So that is what we're talking about when we say, wake up because the time is here. Knowing the time. I truly believe Paul is writing it to premillennialists telling them, hey guys, don't just sit and twiddle your thumbs waiting for Jesus to come. Don't go high up in the mountain and sit there and say, I can get there before anybody else does. Don't do that. Be at work serving the Lord. Telling your coworkers about Jesus Christ. Telling your friends about Jesus Christ. Spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ died and rose again and is sitting at the right hand of God for your salvation. That's why he died. The world needs to know. Amen? Did I scare you? I am sorry if I scared you. That was not my purpose. I want to quickly go through, and I have, the reason I'm using this is I have a ton of verses. I'm going to go on a rant here with a ton of verses. How many understand that? It's not a bad rant. I'm just going to give you an overview. This is, this is not mine. I can't, I, this is condensed, all right? <clears throat> the Millennial Kingdom is the title given to a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Some seek to interpret the thousand years in an allegorical manner i.e. post-millennialists, amillennialists. Both of them do. <clears throat> they understand the thousand years merely as a figurative way of saying a long period of time, not a literal physical reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. However, six times in Romans chapter 20, verse 22 through 7, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, I'm reading from Revelation chapter 20, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were entered, ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones and seated on them were those for whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they came to life. And they reigned with Christ for thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares the first resurrection. Over such the second power has no power, has no, death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We take that literally because the Bible says it over and over and over again six times. Therefore, I'm going to say that's what he says. Amen. The other option is to say, well, he really didn't mean a thousand years. Then what are we doing with Scripture? Who's to say what to, what to say it is? Oh, it just means a thousand years. Then why did he say it six times? The Bible tells us that when Christ, and again, we're going to go through a ton of verses. Here we go. The Bible tells us that when Christ returns to the earth, he will establish himself as king in, in Jerusalem, sitting on the what? This is so important. Throne of David. The Bible says he will be great and will call him in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 through 33. If you want to write these down, this will be very helpful for you. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his Father David. Guess whose father is David? Jesus Christ himself. Where's the throne of David? It's not in heaven. It's never said it's in heaven. That is a glorious throne. This is talking about an earthly throne, the throne of David. 
the unconditional. These covenants that God gave Abraham were not conditional. Abraham did not make it, God didn't make it conditional. He said, this will happen to you. He gave him all these promises that were unconditional. The unconditional commandments demand a literal, physical return of Christ to establish his kingdom. The Abrahamic covenant promised Israel a land, a posterity, a ruler, a spiritual blessing. Genesis chapters 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and for your kindred and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. What did he promise? I will make thee a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse you. In, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The problem is that covenant, if you're a post-millennialist or an amillennialist, has already taken place. Let me ask you, is Israel a great nation today? No. No. Is Israel, is, are all Israel, are they all gathered back into Israel? No. Does Israel own the land that they were promised? No. You can go on and on and on and on. Folks, either God's a liar or this is the truth. That's where it ends up. I'll give you a hint. God cannot lie. He cannot lie. All right, there's more. Hang on. All right. <clears throat> the, the, the Palestinian covenant promises Israel a restoration to the land and occupation of the land. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call, to, call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God and your children and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there He will take you. And the Lord will, God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all His commandments that I command you today. For the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the works of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as He took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and in His statutes, that are written in his book of the law, when you turn to the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. Listen, folks, Israel will turn to God. It's just a matter of time. <clears throat> the Davidic covenant also promises that Israel, a king from David's line, who would rule how long? Forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10 through 17 tells us that. It says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time, then I will appoint judges over my people. And <clears throat> Excuse me. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come after your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Let me ask you, does Israel have a throne in Jerusalem that will last forever? 
We know those aren't true. All right. Are you following this? I won't read as much. I'll just read gasps. All right. Here we go. At the second coming, these covenants will be fulfilled as Israel is regathered from the nations. Matthew chapter 24. They are converted, Zechariah chapter 12, and then restored to the land under the rule of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He says in Zechariah, he will rule with a rod of iron. Amen? Jesus Christ will reign. He will rule. The Bible speaks of the conditions. We find that, by the way, in Matthew 24, Zechariah chapter 12. And they will restore the land, the rule of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks of conditions during the millennium as a perfect environment physically and spiritually. Listen closely. This is what amillennialists are saying is happening right now because we're in the millennium. Listen. <clears throat> the Bible speaks of conditions during the millennium as a <clears throat> perfect environment physically and spiritually. It will be a time of peace. Micah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 32, Isaiah chapter 6. A time of comfort, Isaiah chapter 40. The Bible also tells us that only believers will enter the millennial kingdom. Because of this, it will be a time of true obedience to God, Jeremiah chapter 31. True holiness, Isaiah chapter 35. Truth is the only thing that's out there, Isaiah chapter 65. The knowledge of God, everyone has, Isaiah chapter 11, Habakkuk 2. Christ will rule as king, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11. The nobles and governors will also rule under Christ, Isaiah chapter 32, Matthew chapter 19. And Jerusalem will be the political center of the world, Zechariah chapter 8. Has any of that been happening in today. That is what all millennialists are saying is happening today. And the reason they say that is they believe that the whole Old Testament, in essence, is just an allegory over because it's talking about the church and spiritually in our hearts. Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 7, we've read that. We are expecting a thousand-year reign of Christ. Amen? <clears throat> so, according to what we just read, we are not in the millennium. Jesus Christ is literally coming to this earth to set up the millennium. But when Jesus comes, remember the posts and amillennialists, is he coming to judge or is he coming to set up his kingdom? What is he coming to do? So we have to look at, is Jesus coming to judge? Jesus states how that he has been given authority to judge by the Father. Amen? Jesus Christ is going to judge. In John chapter 5, he says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may be honored the Son, just as they honor the Father. <clears throat> Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Yes, Jesus came into the world to save those who put their trust in Him, John chapter 3, verse 16. But His coming also brought judgment, John chapter 9, verse 39. The Bible says there, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Through His dark death and resurrection, Jesus brought judgment to Satan. John chapter 12, now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, am, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going <clears throat> to die. In essence, a death that would... <coughs> When, let me ask you this. Let's just get to the nitty-gritty here. When, <clears throat> when Jesus Christ died, was Satan happy or sad? He was, he was having a party. But then came his resurrection. And he was crushed. Because he was, he was ecstatic. But then came the reality. 
Through his death and resurrection, Jesus judged Satan. Furthermore, unbelievers will ultimately judge by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are multiple judgments. I'm just going to give you them quickly. There are the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ. There is <clears throat> the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ. He will judge believers. How is he going to judge believers if they're, not, if they're with all the unbelievers? He's, what's happening is he's taking them home and judging them on their works of what they did with the gospel, what they did with what he given them. The, there is the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment talks about judging the unsaved, judging the wicked at the end of the millennial kingdom, the ones that were out there trying to kill him at the last battle. There's also the, great, the sheep and the goat, or what I call the, the nation, the judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations happens at the moment God sends Christ to the earth. But it's either in Zechariah or Zephaniah, I don't remember exactly. He steps foot on the Mount of Olives and he then judges. He says to the sheep, come into my kingdom. He says to the unsaved, go away into eternal fire. Now let me ask you. The Bible says Jesus Christ stands on the Mount of Olives. And he gives us in Matthew 24, there's a lady grinding wheat, two of them. One is taken, one is left. There are men out in the fields, working the fields. One is taken, one is left. What in the world is he talking about? Here's where dispensationalists get mixed up. Oh, that's the that 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 that's got to be the rapture. It's not the rapture. It's not even close to the rapture. This the Bible. Then he gives these metaphors in Matthew 13, explaining that they draw they draw the fish and they throw out the bad ones and keep the good ones. The dragnet, it's called, and there are many other ones. Here's what's happening: Jesus comes to this earth to set up his kingdom. And he draws all the people from the world together. And he takes the bad ones and he throws them into hell. He also takes the good one and the idea is, the issue is, that I can't remember the exact text, that they, he brings them to the kingdom. He starts the kingdom with them. Why would he do that if he was just doing a spiritual kingdom in heaven? That's the great white throne judgment when he separates the good from the bad, the saved from the unsaved. So there are three judgments that we know of, and there are probably many more, but these three, but they're all three in different time frames. They all three have different purposes. So what are we talking about? It can't be the millennial kingdom. Because millennial kingdom, this day, there's, there's a limited time in between that little kingdom, and that is the rapture of his church. Now, the rapture of the church, the rapture does not occur, the word rapture. How many have heard of rapture? Back in the old church that we, that we were in, building, I would pretend I'm jumping rope. Anybody know what jumping rope is for, for Christians? It's rapture practice. I, Tina was there, she remembers. <laughs> rapture practice. There is a rapture, although the term rapture does not occur in the Bible. The term comes from a Latin word meaning to carry off, <coughs> to transport, to snatch away. Carrying off clearly is found in the Scripture. In, fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, <coughs> we do not want you to be uninformed, brother, and this is Paul talking to the Thessalonians. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. So if you die before Christ comes again, he will bring you. Amen. That's what he's saying. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are what? alive will be caught up there's the word caught up raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so from that moment on will we ever be with the lord therefore encourage one another with these words mrs laplante encourages me all the time when i don't mention rapture <laughs> she loves that <coughs> That's our great hope, amen. We are looking forward to the rapture of the church. We are going to meet him in the air. It's interesting that the rapture never talks about Jesus Christ coming on this earth. We meet him in the clouds in the air, but yet then later on it talks about him coming down and standing on the Mount of Olives. Two distinct places, two distinct times. We're talking about in this text, I am convinced the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. <clears throat> now, there's more. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 through 54. The Bible says this. <clears throat> I tell you this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall not all die, but some of us are going to change. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We who are alive shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, mortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory amen amen and amen that's saying exactly what first thessalonians just said so he doesn't talk about it just once he talks about it at least twice if not more <coughs> the rapture will involve an instantaneous transformation of our bodies to fit us for eternity we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall know him, we shall see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. The rapture is to be disguised, I'm sorry, distinguished from the second coming. At the, at the rapture, the Lord comes in the clouds to meet us in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. At his second coming in Zechariah 14, he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and literally splits the mountains in half. Just so you don't get it, right? <clears throat> the doctrine of the rapture was not taught in the Old Testament, which is what Paul calls it a mystery. Now it is revealed. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all changed. 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians talk about this. Then you can go to... <clears throat> Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. I don't know if I have that one on here. I do not. Revelation 3, 10 says, God says, and he's talking about the tribulation, how wicked it's going to be, how bad it's going to be. He said, I will keep you from the wrath to come. Amen. So, there is a rapture. Premillennialists, every premillennialist believes in rapture. Some people believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, a mid-tribulational, a post-tribulational. I don't know where they get that one, but the mid-tribulational, pre-tribulation, we can have coffee. <laughs> We're good. God's coming back to take His people. There are talking about in Scripture a time when people do not die, yet go to heaven, and they are changed. Amen? That's, I believe, what we're talking about here. How many followed where we're at right now? We are at this time in church history where the next event that is going to happen is the imminent return of Jesus Christ in the clouds to take the church away. 
That's what we are anticipating. That is what I believe Paul is trying to express here. He says, listen, that day is coming. We have got to wake up and get preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wake up and start preaching. Now, let's get back into my notes where I can... uh, So we need to wake up. We've talked about that last week. The next, the night is almost gone. Look at the text. It is already the hour when you have awakened from sleep, for the salvation is nearer than when we have believed. The night, by the way, salvation is nearer than when we believed. Amen. True salvation is not just justification. Justification is the beginning of the great salvation. Here's how. When you are saved, the moment you are saved, you are justified. You are positionally with Jesus Christ. Amen? He has taken your sins. You are saved. Praise God, I'm saved at last. But then comes something that the Holy Spirit does on every believer. On every believer. On every believer. Did you get that? We are now being sanctified right now. Amen? We're not only positionally, but practically, we're becoming more and more like Christ. Well, we should be. No, all of us will be being changed. Now, do some Christians act carnally? Yes or no? Let me ask you this. Do we act carnally? But there's something called your heart or your mind or your conscience. What happens when we act carnally? And we're truly born again. <sighs> we feel horrible. We feel, not because somebody saw us, but because we disappointed the Almighty God. There is sanctification as part of salvation. And then the, the last part, folks, you cannot experience full salvation without the last one, let me tell you. Amen? What's the last one? That's the one we just discussed, glorification. As I said in the past, glorification is everybody's five foot six, brown hair, blue eyed. All of you are going to find that out. It's like the perfect body. <laughs> Reality is, we have no idea what that glorification looks like, but we know what it isn't. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more fret. And here's a reality that you might not think of. There's no more faith. Because your faith has become sight. You actually see Christ. You're actually with Him in a glorified, perfect body. Woo! Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, okay, bunch of Lutheran people. (laughs) Minnesota Lutheran, nice. Don't get excited about anything. I'm being facetious. But the reality is, here's how close we are. In Paul's day, the Bible says the night is almost gone. How many would love to see a new president? It's almost here. How many would love to see a new, I don't know, administrator, a new, a new football team? <laughs> they lose all the time, right? We, 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 we want there to be no evil. How many would love to see no evil in this world? By the way, this country is going to hell quicker than we know. Crime is skyrocketing. Have you driven on the streets of Grand Rapids, Minnesota, the acropolis of the whole world? I tell you what, it's getting nuts. There is not a time I have not driven through this city this last week where people don't pull out in front of you. What, what is going on? People don't care. They don't care. It's their world. They're going to do whatever. It doesn't matter. This evil is getting greater and greater. When 20% of all Christians, only 20% say they have a Christian worldview, that's a problem. 
but the night is almost gone. Don't you just, you, you remember that guy that was, was calling the, I got a shrill up my back, so great. That gives me a, shir, a, shir, a shiver up my back, amen. The night is almost gone. The night is almost gone. What does that mean? So you say, I, you know, I don't know what you're talking about because I like sleeping in. That's exactly what he's talking about. Stop it! Wake up! Night is an allegory about wickedness, sin, badness, crime. That's almost gone. Woohoo! Not only that, but the day is at hand. There's a new day dawning. There's a new day coming. What a great day that will be when my Savior, I shall see. When I look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace. What a day that will be. It's not a night that will be. You never sang it that way. Because night is usually an allegory in the Scripture for bad, wicked, sinful, Satan, evil. The day is at hand. Christ's imminent return is at hand. The whole world is certainly not becoming more godly and more peaceful. But even according to the text, 2 Timothy 3.13, it is becoming more ungodly and violent. Every day the news of man's inhumanity to man becomes more wicked and it seems that they invent new ways to repudiate God in a horrendous way. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7, knowing this, first of all, that the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of the kingdom? Mm -hmm. Forever, since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. See, nothing's changed, nothing's different. Where's your God? He's supposed to be coming here. Where is he? They will mock. But when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that. By the word of God, the heavens exist long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at this time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire. In other words, if they're going to mock at you, just say, hey, let's look back at Noah's day. Let's see what happened. You said nothing was going to happen. There's no rain. What in the world? You, we don't believe you. We're not going with you. We're not getting in that ark. We're not going to get in with those animals. Forget you. You're just some religious guru weirdo. It wasn't long after Noah shut the door, they were clamoring to get in the ark. Because for the first time, they realized there was a God. And now it's too late. Is that not the exact same thing that our neighbor is going to recognize? Is that not the exact same thing that our coworker and our family members who don't know the Lord will finally one day wake up? We're not here. The heaven or earth is literally hell. They were blind and did not see. They were deaf and did not hear. And now they're lost and in eternity in hell. You, all of us, have the truth. We still can have the open door to Christ the ark. Amen. What are we doing about that? The day is at hand. Hebrews, oh wow. We will pick up where I left off next week, okay? <clears throat> the night is gone. The day is near. Because of that, we'll talk about it next week. Amen? Unless he comes back. Oh, my goodness. Won't it be exciting? How many people are you going to talk to before that? 
I'll leave you with this illustration. I was with a man in my, <clears throat> I would call it the counseling building because <laughs> it seems like two weeks ago I spent more time counseling than I did working at my shop. It was just over and over, one right after another. <clears throat> man came in and said, <clears throat> Tim, why don't people, why don't churches talk about Biblical things. I mean, they talk about fishing. They talk about hunting. They talk about uh, all these golfing, whatever. They talk about all that stuff. But they never talk about biblical things. And I, I took it upon myself to just, just go up to somebody, hey, how are you doing spiritually? Just ask them the question. And it blew them away. Well, of course it would. It's out of the norm. How horrible is that? Amen? Folks, you can talk to your neighbor about fishing and hunting and all this other stuff that you want to talk to them about, and they will have knowledge and still go to hell. But if you share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you share with them what the Lord is doing in your life, God might just open their hearts to accept His Word. But you'll never know if you don't talk to them. And what greater love can you do than that, by the way? What greater love is there than sharing with your friends, enemies, loved ones, whatever, Jesus Christ and what He's done? Wake up. The night's almost here. The day is gone. Let's start proclaiming the gospel as we were intended to by God. Amen. How many of you are saved but still here? Raise your hand. Why? Why? You're still here because somebody you know needs the gospel. Otherwise, what's the point of being here? You're an alien, right? We don't belong here. We belong in heaven. Let's do what God purposed us to do. Let's serve Him the way God wanted us to serve Him while still on this earth. Because the day is coming. The day is coming quick. I remember holding my little boy for the first time in my life. And just like that, he's an adult on his own out of the house. Just like that. We don't have much time, folks. What is 80 years compared to eternity? Some of us might only have two years. Ten years. How can you serve the Lord out of love in that amount of time? Oh, there are so many things we can do. Let's get going. Amen? Let's get serious. By the way, that's why I talk when you go out there, hey, what'd you think of this text? What'd you think of that word? I try to keep doing that. Why? Because then you sit there for an hour talking theology. Amen! If you're going to spend an hour talking about theology, you're going to be talking about theology somewhere else too. Amen? Amen. All right. Bob Knaus, can you please stand and close us in a word of prayer, please? I'm sorry I put you on the spot there, but thank you.